Today represents the one year anniversary of Hear the Burn. For 52 episodes straight, no interruption, we've been bringing you news from the campaign. From protesting the Hahnemann Hospital closure last July, to catching up with Michael Moore and Megan Day about the mood of the left in October. From our live show with Kyle Kalinske in November, to our moving conversation with Akeem Browder about prison reform last May, we have diligently endeavored to make the people, ideas, and values that motivate this movement obvious to anyone who might be curious about joining this coalition. Now, when we started this podcast, there were over 20 candidates in this race. Bernie has overcome enormous odds to be one of the last two standing. He bounced back strong from a mild heart attack that some hoped would keep him out. He has overcome lies and smears from allies and enemies alike. He withstood an attempt by a billionaire backed by the corporate wing of the Democratic Party to buy the election outright. And now, as the country stumbles under the weight of historic unemployment numbers fueled by a global pandemic, he's facing off against a corporate candidate who still defends the status quo employer-based health insurance model. No one agrees with Joe Biden. Polls show that Americans want the policies Bernie supports and the policies Biden is fighting against. But the corporate media class, which freely admitted last week that their Twitter posts, opinions, and political allegiances are influenced by those who sign their paychecks, are working overtime to convince Americans that Joe Biden, who has emerged from nearly a week of seclusion to offer vague, platitude-filled rhetoric, which fails to meet the needs of this historic moment, is, in fact, more electable. Fearing four more years of Trump, voters who prefer Medicare for all, who want debt cancellation, who want a wealth tax, who desperately need things to fundamentally change, are being told, once again, to hold their nose. But just as Hillary was uniquely vulnerable to Trump in 2016, Biden's vulnerabilities are as obvious as the nose on my face. He has been dogged by personal scandal and remains largely unvetted by the corporate media, which is more invested in the status quo than you. And the thing is, many of the other candidates in the race knew it too. How can we forget Kamala Harris's powerful account of how Biden's close friendship with segregationist Strom Thurmond and his anti-busing stance hurt her? It was hurtful to hear you talk about the reputations of two United States senators who built their reputations and career on the segregation of race in this country. And it was not only that, but you also worked with them to oppose busing. How can we ignore that both she and Warren were two of 17 senators to sign on to Bernie's Medicare for All bill? Most folks who supported the other progressive candidates in the race agree. Yes, it's disappointing when your candidate doesn't make it through. I empathize. You put so much energy, so much emotion, so much time and even money behind a person, and it turns out that not enough people saw what you did. It's really, really hard. But that's why I'm so heartened by the courage of millions of Americans who put their values First, people who truly believe that healthcare is a human right and that we shouldn't be one of the only countries in the world without paid sick leave 
or free childcare, and who have joined Bernie in the fight for an economic bill of rights. This week, I spoke to two Warren warriors who now support Bernie Sanders to find out what their path to Bernie was like, how they came over their hesitancy, if any, and what advice they have to making sure our progressive flock is reunited under one banner to fight one of the hardest fights of our time. First, I spoke to Ryan Knight, a progressive activist with an enormous Twitter following who started supporting Bernie after his decisive early state wins. I then spoke to Blair Amani, an author and activist who was a member of the Black Lives Matter movement, was formerly a press agent for Planned Parenthood, and who is now a vocal supporter of Bernie Sanders. This is Hear the Burn, a podcast about the people, ideas, and politics driving the Bernie 2020 campaign and the movement to secure a dignified life for everyone living in this country. My name is Brianna Joy Gray, and I'm coming to you from my apartment in Washington, D.C. Let's get started. Ryan, this is kind of an experimental episode. What I've been really wanting to do for a long time is to talk to folks who you know, whose first choice candidate, second choice candidate even have dropped out. Obviously, we saw an incredibly crowded field that peaked at what, like 26 people that's now narrowed down to two. And the real question of the day is, how do you go about this project of coalition building? How does one, after a long and difficult primary, convince people or make yourself appealing to people who once saw you as perhaps enemies, especially given some of the things that, you know, have erupted over the course of a campaign season. And so what I wanted to do was to talk to people who had, I think in particular, been supportive of Elizabeth Warren, because that's the coalition that seems most aligned ideologically with Bernie Sanders on the merits. And you are one of the people who was one of the more vocal folks on Twitter, both for Warren and now for Bernie Sanders. And so I wanted to ask you a little bit about what your journey was like. Yeah, that's right. Well, first, I'll just say that I don't know how someone who goes from supporting Elizabeth Warren and what she was fighting for and the progressive policies and and values that she was fighting for. I don't know how you go from that to supporting Joe Biden. So let me just start there. I, I don't because... I am a progressive activist. I actually voted for Bernie Sanders in 2016 uh, during the primary. And then after the primary was over, you know, it was a very hard fought primary. It was the first time that I had heard someone on the Democratic side start to talk about these really just systemic issues in our society, you know, like economic inequality and racial injustice and not just talk about it, but have solutions for it. He really kind of ironed the point. I'm like, look, These are our tax dollars that are getting spent. And right now, our tax dollars are going for endless wars and for corporate welfare. Wouldn't it be nice to live in a country that our tax dollars went to education and went to bridges, roads, and went to Medicare for all so everyone can have health care? I mean, really simple stuff. And then what we had happen is Trump came in. And yes, Trump is a terrible president. But Trump, for me, Trump is not the disease. Trump is the symptom. The disease that's destroying America is greed, and it has corrupted our political system. It has corrupted our healthcare system. 
and it, it has corrupted our economic system. When you have so much money up here and nothing down here, I mean, that systemic equality is going through our entire, resonates through our whole country. It connects all the problems. And so, you know, Elizabeth Warren, when she came out, I was looking for some, you know, Elizabeth Warren is a great messenger for progressive policy. Big structural change, not backing down from the fight. I mean, she came out bold and big and I'm like, okay, we've got big problems, so we need big solutions. So, but what happened for me was, look, we have two wings of our party. We have a more moderate side and a more progressive side. And while Warren ran a great campaign, the progressive side of the party was sticking with Bernie. And so after New Hampshire, when Bernie won New Hampshire, I said to myself, okay, the progressive movement is speaking loud and clearly. They want Bernie Sanders. And so as a progressive activist, at that moment after New Hampshire, I got behind Bernie Sanders. Now, the moment I came out in support of Bernie Sanders, I have never received more online Twitter bashing since I've been on Twitter. And I'm very outspoken. So I get it from Trump supporters all the time, but that's to be expected. I thanked Elizabeth Warren and, and her team. And, you know, I, I, you know, I fought hard with them, but at that moment it was like, okay, we have all the moderates are coalescing around Biden. And so we need to get the progressives to coalesce around Bernie. Because again, if you see that Trump is just a symptom, it's not just about getting rid of Trump. It's about getting rid of Trump and passing the progressive policies that will heal the inequality in this nation. Right. We can't just be the Donald Trump sucks party. Yeah, Donald Trump is awful, but that's not enough, right? It's not enough to just be, yeah, Donald Trump sucks. What are Democrats fighting for, right? We have to give people something to vote for, not just something to vote against. And we saw that in a lot of the messaging coming out of 2016 when when there's this, this great article that I've mentioned on the podcast before by a journalist named Malika Jabali, who's also been on the podcast before, in which she went and spoke to and, and talked about and analyzed what went on with voters in Wisconsin and why there was such a decline in the number of people who came out to vote in 2016 versus 2012. And specifically, she was focused on Black voters because the decline was something like a decline by 88,000 voters. Right. Hillary only needed 20-odd thousand to have won the state. And so when asked, what they said was they didn't point to voter suppression. They didn't. What they said was either that they were disaffected and felt like neither party spoke to them or that their vote wasn't going to really do anything anyway, that there was nothing affirmative for them to be casting their vote for exactly like you said. So to me, that's also a really big electability question, which is to say, are we going to be able to get our people out? And excited in the general election the way that Donald Trump has obviously proven his ability to do. And so you can't just, like you say, fall back on Trump is bad. You have to give some people an incentive to go to the polls. That's right. That's right. And it comes to a point where it's like, especially with this pandemic, right? This pandemic is proving that everything Bernie Sanders is fighting for is right and is just. We have almost 30 million Americans who are going to be kicked off their private health insurance in the next three months, according to a new report from the HMA. And when you have 30 million people being kicked off their health insurance and you're still opposing Medicare for all, I just don't know how that position is tenable. When we're seeing, you know, Bernie Sanders just yesterday, he put out his, what he'd like to see in the new relief package. The first relief package was not a bailout for the people. It was a bailout for corporations. And we've already been here before. This is where I get 
a little frustrated with my fellow Democrats. In 2008, in the last big economic recession, the taxpayers, we bailed out the big banks. We bailed out Wall Street. And look what happened. 12 years later, an income inequality in the United States of America is at the highest point than it's been in a half century. So here we are again, you know, there were millions of people already in a crisis before the pandemic, right? Income inequality at a 50 year high. Now we've got more people in a crisis because the economy is now even worse. And we have a government that is still putting the welfare of corporations over the welfare of people. Just because Donald Trump is so bad, it doesn't give our party and the Democratic Party an excuse to settle for the status quo. Blaming Trump isn't going to solve economic inequality. Blaming Trump isn't going to solve the, the health care, the cost of health care crisis. Blaming Trump isn't going to solve the climate crisis. We have to be the party of big solutions to match the big problems of the moment. And right now, there are two candidates left. There is right. one candidate that is campaigning on big and bold solutions in Bernie Sanders. And there's another candidate in Joe Biden who's campaigning on I'm decent, I'm, you know me, I'm Joe, let's go back to 2016 and, and, and make America normal again. I got news for you. There is too much inequality in this country for us to heal it with just platitudes and just, right. yeah, let's go back. Because I think a lot of people don't realize, quote unquote, normal, let's go back to normal. There were 80 million people who were either uninsured or underinsured when things were normal, right? right? Income inequality was still rising in 2016 when things were normal. So this idea that we need to go back to normal, no, we need to move America forward. And I don't see Joe Biden with an agenda or a platform or policies that will move this country forward, especially now that we're in the pandemic. So it does seem, as you've teed up, that the contrast between the candidates that are left is very, very clear. So I want to ask you what you think is going on with those who identify as progressives, who supported any number of candidates who self-identified as progressives, whether or not we take issue with some aspects of their platform. People like Kamala Harris, who signed on to Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All bill, Julian Castro, Cory Booker, and of course, Elizabeth Warren, what do you make of their choice, some of their choices to stay with Joe Biden? The big thing, if you look at the actual exit polling from the states, while Joe Biden might be winning this electability battle, mm -hmm. Bernie Sanders is winning the ideological battle. Mm -hmm. When you look at every exit polling, and it's a little frustrating, actually, because every <laughs> exit polling shows the overwhelming majority of, of, of Democratic primary voters support Bernie's platform. Every state that's voted overwhelmingly supports Medicare for all. They overwhelmingly support a wealth tax. They support universal child care. None of which Joe Biden supports. Right. They support a Green New Deal. When you have all the voters supporting Bernie's platform, yet voting for a different candidate, here's what it speaks to for me. It speaks to the level of fear in the electorate. Mm. And I get it. Donald Trump is scary. But when you're faced with fear, you have two choices. You know, it's fight or it's flight. And unfortunately, a lot of Democrats have chosen flight. They've chosen to retreat to what's familiar, 
and what quote unquote feels safe instead of choosing to fight for a more just and equitable America. And at this moment, if we're going to beat Trump and be the party that moves America into the future, we can't just be the anti-Trump party. We have to have a bold vision to run on. And I don't hear that bold vision from Joe Biden. All I hear is Trump's really bad, which yeah, but, and we need to get rid of him, yeah. But there's no, there's no plan to actually fix the, the, the systemic problems and the systemic rot that has corrupted our political system and our healthcare system and our economic system. So it's like, you can just get rid of Trump, but the problems are still gonna be there and there's no solutions for them. So I think that people are scared and they went to what was familiar. And I don't think that is going to be enough to beat Donald Trump. The other thing I'll say, and I have no problem saying this is, I am so disappointed in the mainstream media and particularly the CNNs of the world and the MSNBCs of the world. Even when I supported Elizabeth Warren, the mainstream media, you know, and, and CNN and MSNBC, they gave her terrible coverage. You know, they called her divisive. They were like, how are you going to pay for it? They didn't out of Buttigieg or Biden or Klobuchar. Right. So, yeah. I mean, was the mainstream media a little bit worse than Bernie? Probably. But they weren't kind to Warren either. Sure. Like, let's not forget, it, it, you know, they, the corporate media... It, it just so happens that they always favor the more conservative or more moderate candidate in any given race. Yeah. And what I want more moderate people to understand is that if you think that when we get into the general election and, and if Biden does become the nominee, if you think that the mainstream media and, and CNN and MSNBC are all of a sudden going to you know, treat Biden better than the way they treat Trump, go look at 2016. The mainstream corporate media gave Donald Trump $5 billion in free advertising. Corporate media created this monster. And here we are in the middle of a pandemic. And this week, they praised Donald Trump for his tone. Right. I'm sorry. Anyone who says that uh, 100,000 to 240,000 Americans dying is a good job. No, that's not a good job, Donald Trump. You don't get to claim a victory lap because you downplayed this pandemic. You lied about this pandemic. You compared it to the flu for the first, you know, two and a half months of the pandemic. So this idea that like we have this fair and balanced corporate media system is BS, quite frankly. And the corporate media has been so unfair to Bernie Sanders. And you can actually look, there was a report leading up to South Carolina when he got the, uh, the Clyborne endorsement. He got $75 million worth of free earned media on CNN and MSNBC. So that's really hard to compete against. There's two kind of narratives that I see, two rationale that I see being put forward by, I think, the minority. I, I want to really be clear that the vast majority of Warren supporters, I think, were in it for the right, you know, for the policy reasons and are, are, are aligned with us as you are. But for those who aren't, it seems to be, one, this idea that Joe Biden presents a safer choice, that he's... Right. He's decent and good and predictable and safe, which I think on the merits is problematic because there's a whole number of things right. swirling around in the ether that we don't necessarily have to get into that present real problems for him in the general election. The other is that, well, I would have been with Bernie, but his supporters are too toxic and that's a team that I don't want to be a part of. Does that, does that feel right to you? Are those things that you've heard? It feels right. 
And it also feels ridiculous. <laughs> it's the same word. Let me just say this. Since I endorsed Bernie Sanders in February, I have been called young and dumb. I have been called uh, a grifter. I've been called a fraud. I have been called a Russian bot. Um, I have been called, you know, I've been actually called a traitor. Mm. This anti-Bernie-ness is absolutely hysteria. It's absolutely ridiculous. How are you going to try to tell me and us that the man who is fighting for guaranteed health care, a living wage, and a habitable planet is somehow the villain or the bad guy of this story. It's absolutely ludicrous. The bad guy is in the Oval Office, and we're all trying to get him out of the Oval Office. Some of us just have different ideas on how to do it. And I am so tired of Democrats being afraid to fight for the people, right? When you have the overwhelming majority of Democratic voters support Medicare for all, a wealth tax, and universal child care, and then you have Democratic leadership in Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi and Joe Biden who oppose the policies that the majority of our party support, how do you reconcile that? I reconcile it by saying it's time for us to have new leadership. That's it. If the leaders are not going to work for us, for their constituents, it's time for new leadership. And one more thing, we are in the middle of a pandemic and our government can't even get medical supplies to doctors, nurses, and hospitals. Think about that. And our government can't even get cash and get relief into the American people's hands, but they can get a big bailout into corporations. So we need people to start connecting these dots. When you have a government that's been bought off by corporations and billionaires, they have no idea how to do anything for the people because they're too busy doing, doing things for, again, corporations and billionaires. So that's where we are. Part of what we try to do on this podcast is talk about kind of the historical path to the present. And so people understand that this isn't a world of good guys or bad guys. Sometimes politics is portrayed by moderates is, you know, there's the evil guy, there's Trump or some bad actors in the Democratic Party, and then there's the heroes on the other side, when the reality is there are plenty of good people in politics who have made bad decisions over the course of their careers because they are captured, because of the way corporate corruption works, because of the way that you're required to raise money in Congress, to stay in Congress, and people slowly, slowly, slowly have their ideals chipped on, chipped, chipped away from, even if they aren't coming into it from a, a ill-meaning place, right? So I think it's important for us to understand how the systems work so we can see more clearly why people are making choices that seem not to gel with what their stated ideals are or right. why they're voting against the interests of their constituents or, you know, things like this. But I also think that there is a, that that cynicism, and I don't blame individuals for this, because we have been taught this. We have been told that better, a better world isn't possible. We have been told that the reason we don't have a social safety net is because we can't afford it. We've been told, and we talked about this in last week's episode, that we can't simply print money, as it were, because of inflation when that's not how inflation works at all. And we see now in the midst of this crisis that we're very quick to print 
1.5 trillion dollars, you know, and then to print another two trillion dollars a week later to bail out corporations yeah. largely, right? So I think it's really important for us to, yes, hold the, everyone, including the Democratic Party, responsible insofar as our people aren't listening to Republicans, right? But our people are listening to party leaders who are saying, you can't do this, that Medicare for all is pie in the sky, that it's akin to wanting a pony, wanting health care so your family is protected from the worst things that can happen to you. It's akin to wanting a pony. And that kind of messaging coming from people that we trust within our own party is, I think, some of the most dangerous the most dangerous words that have ever been levied, the most dangerous actions that have ever been taken against progressive politics. So I really appreciate you online and in your personal life making the case for why progressivism is on the ballot. And regardless of what you think about Bernie Sanders, the man, I happen to think he's great, real minch. The reality is that if you cared about these ideals, then that's these are the this is this is where we are. And I appreciate you taking the heat that you take online and using your influence to advance progressive policies. I want to thank you for everything you're doing for Bernie's campaign. I saw people trying to cancel you this week and I'm like, you know, you can't cancel Bernie. Like <laughs> she's you know, she's way beyond that stage. I mean, you have become such an incredible advocate and voice for the progressive movement. And I'm so grateful for you. And I'm so grateful to fight with you and fight alongside you. And don't let anyone stop you because we need voice. We need more people like you who won't sell out their values. So thank you. I want to thank you too for everything you're doing. I appreciate that. You're, you're too kind, but I do appreciate it, Ryan. Thank you. I'll, I'll see you on Twitter. I'll see you on Twitter. All right, stay safe out there. joined by activist Blair Amani, who is a powerful force on the left for progressive values and has been for a long time. Thank you so much for agreeing to join us in the midst of all this hecticness. Oh, no problem. Just, you know, a little something to do, which is a great thing. <laughs> Tell me about it. Can you explain to our listeners what your journey to kind of left politics has been like, what your background has been, and how you came to kind of find your own political ideology? For sure. So I think that it kind of all started for me with my parents and like their very big push towards like being cautious, conscience of the underdog. Like both of my parents kind of grew up as the odd ones out. And I did as well. We were the only black family in the neighborhood I grew up in San Marino due to redlining. But it all started out with my parents and just this steadfast compassion for people who are unheard. I went to Louisiana State University and I started organizing with pretty much anyone who would listen. That means, you know, kind of reaching across the aisle to like we had organized this campaign for um, climate change or fighting climate change. And it was trying to get these folks who have these forests in Louisiana and trying to prevent that wood from being taken overseas and turned into coal we use kind of that libertarian talking point of not, you know, not on my watch, not my government. And so we just really got creative with it. That's when I started working with Planned Parenthood in Louisiana. And about, I think a year after my graduation, I got hired by Planned Parenthood Federation of America. 
And I had always just really seen the impact that healthcare has taken on people. I had organized a grant where we gave free pap smears to predominantly undocumented women in Brownsville, Texas. And just to see firsthand how life-changing that was, you can read all of the studies in the world, but to really like hold somebody's hand and have them thank you for, you know, helping to organize something that is totally necessary and a human right really makes you think about the world and the inequalities of the world in a different way, something that feels way more tangible. As far as me getting on the Bernie train, I had been supporting Elizabeth Warren, but my friend Kayla Williams, she called me and she like called me the day before the primaries in LA. And she like, she's like, girl, I know you probably don't want to hear this, but I don't know who else, like, I don't know who else is going to bring you in. And she was just breaking down how important it is to just stand for what's right in the moment because as much as people hate to hear it, Elizabeth Warren is way more center than I am. It's very necessary to call that out. And I think that people have this trauma from the 2016 election and it is carried over and misplaced anger placed onto different candidates. But at the end of the day, we have to let go of that. We have to really think about what does progress mean for us? I'm so proud of the people who have gone Warren to Sanders, because that's, I think, what this country needs. It's medicine that this country needs. We're very sick right now in many ways, but we're only as healthy as our sickest, most vulnerable member of society. And we have to stand up for them, too. Yeah. So so Warren, as a person, kind of staying out and not throwing her allegiance behind the person who's most ideologically aligned with her, you know, Bernie, is frustrating for a lot of people on the left. But I, I want to try to focus on her supporters first and foremost, because those are the people who are ultimately going to be voting, right? And I don't want to be in a place where folks who are already feeling frustrated that their candidate, their preferred candidate, didn't make it through. I can definitely empathize with how it must feel to have supported someone who, as strong a communicator as Warren, who espoused so many progressive values, who among the field was obviously so much closer to Bernie than anyone else. And to see her not be able to get as far as someone like Joe Biden, who is just the most, literally the most moderate person. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Most moderate front runner anyway on the race. Someone who didn't even pretend to care about any form of Medicare for all, who in the middle of a pandemic. Yeah. To be perfectly honest about how he seemed during the last debate. It really seems like, especially when they're talking about the president of Mexico, it sounds like he was that cool kid who left the city, who came back and then was like, hey, guys, I'm cool. Remember, y'all should like me. Remember, instead of really, you know, it's it's somebody who rests on their laurels instead of really Mm. being like, hey, I'm going to do outreach. There is this pernicious insistence on framing everything that Joe Biden says as a gaffe, as kind of like a harmless mistake that doesn't touch his true intent and his heart, but what are we supposed to judge him on other than his actions? And his actions, his history of policymaking has always been corporate driven. He is a corporate Democrat to his core. He's told a group of funders that nothing would fundamentally change last year. And he has committed to that so much that in the middle of literally a global pandemic, he's spreading right-wing talking points about how Medicare for all wouldn't help even in the face of 10 million additional people being uninsured and therefore booted from their health care like the candidates are somebody who's been, you know, they're both career politicians, but not in the sense of, you know, like what that word means can like quantitatively in the United right. States. But you have somebody who has been supporting LGBTQ people in Vermont for literally decades, 
somebody right. who hasn't had to evolve on the issue, somebody who hasn't made gaffes and made embarrassing statements. Then you have another person who has been kicked out of the presidential run for plagiarism in the past and somebody right. who, who didn't believe Anita Hill. You know, Bernard versus Joe, it's just, it's disappointing because you even have people in my family who, you know, feeling the burn, feeling the burn, but are starting to listen to these pundits about electability. And it's like, no, what we need right now is somebody who is willing to pull America forward, not somebody who's trying to go back to 2008. Well, it feels to me sometimes, and and, and trying to really target the psychology of people who see themselves as progressives, right? Because there are a lot of people who see themselves as progressives who are progressives, who also supported a lot of candidates, not just Elizabeth Warren, progressive supported Pete Buttigieg, progressive supported Kamala Harris. I might have a difference of opinion about whether or not that those candidates were the best choice for progressives, but I don't want to spend time, you know, attacking or demeaning people for their political choices. What I want to do is figure out and, and get your help as someone who's supported other candidates in the past, get your help to try to figure out how to frame what Bernie offers and what the stakes are in this election so that those who are reluctant about supporting Bernie Sanders and but who share his underlying value don't feel any hesitation about pulling the lever for him when their state votes. I think the first thing for me is really framing these these conversations and these attacks. So like what was my hesitance towards Bernie? First of all, I was really listening to the rhetoric about mm-hmm. whose Bernie supporting base was. There are a great number, a huge demographic of Black people who don't get polled, Latino folks who don't get polled who are supporting Bernie Sanders. So of course yeah. we're not appearing in a demographic research because we're not getting polled, but we're here. Yeah. And you can see that online, you can see that in person, you can see that when you go to rallies, when you go to volunteer st- uh, stations, of course, before the Rona. Yeah. And it really took one of my girlfriends calling me, you know, just like that person to person conversation to be like, look, here are the stakes, here's the platform. I know that there's that, it's a cognitive barrier, I think, right? Like it's, United States has been built on capitalism. Capitalism has worked, which is, I'll put big, huge scare quotes, especially (laughs) as a historian, because it has not worked for us, for people who look like us. It has only worked for a very small percentage. And so the Bernie that I was familiar with, I wasn't really thinking of him as a serious candidate, I don't think, which is horrifying because (sighs) it really is reflective of how he's been portrayed. I think I also was really stuck in the path of, you know, the 2016 primary where Mm. I was still thinking about like, okay, no, he wasn't viable then, but he totally was because there were two front runners. But I also think like this whole Bernie bros thing to say that there is a faction of toxic people in one specific camp. Like I'm not even going to shout them out because I don't want to get attacked by the other camps. (laughs) Uh, but it's ludicrous. You, you know who they are. You know their names. Oh, we all do. Um, and so it's not even that. It's just like, you know, there's some Ariana Grande fans who are a little out of pocket, you know, like it's it's not reflective of the person. It's reflective of the human species. You know, we're always going to have jerks. I don't know if I can cuss, but I'll say a-holes who, it. yeah, <laughs> we're always going to have jerks and assholes in every camp because that's just how the stratification of human behavior works. And so I think people need to be, you know, put your little critical thinking hijab on or hat or whatever <laughs> um, and really understand the fact that these stakes and there is a lot of infrastructure, especially moneyed infrastructure, trying to make Bernie Sanders seem illegitimate, like he doesn't make any sense. but. I've seen folks time and time again, especially folks like Jordan All and Ken Klipperstein online, say things like, every time you see propaganda about how socialism doesn't work, all the systems in the United States that we love, 
systems created by FDR, like the New Deal, which didn't have a race analysis, but could in the present day. Um, Those were based on socialism and those brought the country forward in times of immense and dire need. So America has been a socialist country for a long time. We're kind of like by ideological, you know, like we have these ideas and these ideas, but people talking about like what communism and socialism does with breadlines. We're living that right now under this stark capitalist reality. And so I think that it takes looking at a historical lens, but then also when you hear somebody say something about Bernie Sanders to really consider the landscape of so many things, including the vast array of anti-Semitism that exists in the United States. The themes that I hear I'm hearing, and I, we heard this in our, in our other interview for this podcast this week are the electability argument, becomes a barrier to entry for people. The Bernie bro narrative of just not wanting to be in a club with people who are allegedly a certain kind of way that reflects on the principle, allegedly. And then the kind of a lack of a structural analysis. So for me personally, and this is some of the work that we try to do on this podcast, I know that my politics really moved beyond a kind of generic liberalism when I went to law school and came to understand much more pointedly how the systems are all designed to support wealth. So, you know, starting on your first day of corporate law and being told that all of the rules are designed to protect um, shareholders as the most vulnerable (laughs) constituency in the world. Shareholders Mm -hmm. as being pointed to as the most vulnerable and seeing how our own kind of system justification biases make us or teach us to feel that when things work out badly for people, it's because they're bad people and they've made a mistake, because they're poor, because they're ugly, because they're black, because whatever it is, as opposed to the systems actually being flawed. And when you understand historically what has happened, when you understand historically that it's Bill Clinton who repealed Glass-Steagall and the protection, economic protections that we had, when we understand that it's not about rep- Republicans versus Democrats or good guys versus bad guys as much as it is about moneyed interests and people who are not captured by those interests, then you start to have a sense of politics that is very different from the kind that I had going into my 20s. And I hear you speaking in those terms as well. And I wonder how much that comes up when you're having conversations with your friends and peers who are not embedded in Bernie world as I am. Well, I wonder if I can... Um, make some book recommendations just based on this conversation you've had briefly. Sure. So the first one is by Shirley Better and it's called Institutional Racism. And mm-hmm. I feel like a professor right now. But anyway, <laughs> this one has been really helpful in like my own ideological formation. This is something that I read after I was arrested in Baton Rouge during the Black Lives Matter mm-hmm. protest. My mom sent it to me and I didn't even know she was going to send it. Send it. She just was like, read this because um, it'll kind of help you understand that like what you went through Not that like I had closed my ears the entire time I grew up to the stories of racism in the world, but it's not just stories, it's infrastructure. And then the second one, the conversation around redlining was huge during the election or during when Bloomberg had his little tax write-off moment. So I have this map of redlining actually in my book, Making Our Way Home. That's pretty much like the impetus for the work that I do as a historian is to emphasize the fact that we didn't just 
stumble and stumble and stumble through the same type of circumstances. Some people, white people, were put on a conveyor belt and we were forced to climb this jagged mountain. And then we, when we didn't meet to the mountaintop, then we were blamed. And we're told that our conditions are what we're forced to endure on our own. But I find myself making a lot of the arguments that like my uncle Vernon did, for example, my uncle Vernon would talk about how segregation and integration wasn't integration. It was assimilation. It was kind of a one directional movement where black people were forced to aspire to whiteness just to be successful. Yet there's another book by Ira Katz Nelson called When Affirmative Action Was White. And that's another great book to look at about how socialized programs in the United States lack race analysis and how we're in this really particular moment to be able to undo some of that harm and to move forward. But as I speak to people about what they care about most, and I think about folks who, you know, were really looking at candidates like Pete Buttigieg, who liked the idea of a candidate that fit their representational mindset, oh, I want a gay candidate, but didn't represent the interests of all of the LGBT community. And so I think that's what it is, you know, like you're saying, getting away from that surface level liberalism to say, well, why don't we just stand up? And it's like, because we're literally being held down by systems and not just new systems, but century old systems and really getting underneath that. I was someone who was like, I don't want to vote for a septuagenarian white person, not going to do it. But if that septuagenarian white person is doing a lot for the community, I can't just be a representation liberal where I'm looking at people who look like me to do the work when those people are working directly against my interests. And so that's a hard conversation for folks to have when we've been inundated with this representation matters. And it does, but representation with an analysis of community is what matters more. So that is a hard conversation. And it's a conversation that I have had both online and as a journalist, I wrote a lot about the way that identity has been weaponized in politics to dress up candidates that are your mainstream, regular, schmegular, regular corporate candidates as something appealing to a diverse constituency, which the Democratic Party is. And those conversations are difficult because I think there is so much a misinformation and confusion about what people mean when they say identity politics versus weaponizing identity politics, which is my critique, versus just saying identity politics is bad without defining what that term is, and which gets conflated with identity is bad or talking about identity is bad, which of course it is not. I feel like this is really a turning point where in this election, what we had was an, one of the most diverse fields of options in terms of identity that we've ever had. But the alignment of race or gender or sexual identity didn't line up with necessarily who actually had the most progressive policy platforms or the policies that would most benefit the most marginalized groups. So, you know, most people didn't support Medicare for all. Medicare for all, of course, means that It covers transition surgery. It covers PrEP. We have a housing guarantee. One in five trans people end up homeless in their lifetime, higher than any other population. All of these quote unquote intersectional effects that are met by these so-called universal programs that didn't make it through the conversation because it feels to me like there are a lot of interlocutors. There's a lot of people in the media, many of whom are diverse as it were, who insist on beating the drum that the way the path forward is purely through representation. And I'm curious what your approach has been and what your experience has been trying to have conversations with people who understandably are deeply invested in identity and representation matter rather, because it does matter. The question is whether it matters more 
than supporting the lives and well-being and livelihoods of all the people of various identities who would benefit from programs from someone who might not also possess those personal identity factors. I mean, what, what's your approach there? You know, it's very difficult. I think that, you know, we can't discount the impact of symbolism, but it's the same way people talk about exposure. Like you can't pay somebody an exposure. They can't pay their Mm -hmm. rent with exposure. You know, it's like, I can't give myself heart surgery with representation. You know, like if I have somebody who's, who doesn't have the qualifications, even though they have the identity types, like, you know, they make me feel comfortable, but they don't have the skill set, then that's not going to do anything for me. That's definitely not to say that you can't have both. Right. I think that that can't be understated. Like we can have both. We can have like well-qualified individuals who are also diversely represented. However, when we rely on the the diverse representation and we stop looking at the track record and we stop looking at what they do honestly represent, because for myself, I'm a Muslim woman and, you know, I'm a fair-skinned Black woman. Like I represent these things. However, this also means that I have work to do in terms of my own privilege, right? Because I'm perceived Mm. a certain way, I have a certain set of um, perceptions that valid or invalid are things that I have to consider whether or not I want to address. So I think Bernie Sanders, or not even I think, I know Bernie Sanders has been very transparent and honest about what it means to be a septuagenarian white person and what it means to be, to have the same set of qualifications as a different candidate. But I think that he's also somebody who is not just an ally, but an accomplice to say, and let me elevate these people, which is what he did when there was a conversation around the harassment from, you know, these so-called, you know, Bernie bros. I call them Sanders siblings because we we can, you know, we're diverse and that's, you know, non-binary. But the first thing he he said was, and in fact, don't even think about what I've gone through. Think about the, the women of color, the black women on my campaign. I've seen what they've gone through. That is far worse than anything these candidates on stage are going through. And I think that it's, the willingness to put yourself in an uncomfortable position to use a word that Brittany Packnett often employs to spend your privilege and to not just be there and to say, oh, okay, well, I'm going to allow people to come to the table. I'm going to say and use my position to say, why is there an exclusive table in the first place? And to tear that down. So you have somebody like Bernie Sanders who has been an open tolerant, accepting person from the get-go, has been fundamentally anti-war from the get-go, hasn't had to evolve and see the harms of something, but has learned and understood the consequences of various things and been able to apply them to his life. I think that's really what it comes down to is the track record. There are so many people who have been elected. I won't say names because again, we know who we're talking about, but you have individuals who've been elected to different positions, like mayor, for example, who have been touted as, you know, kind of bastions of hope. Oh, this is great for, it's a great look for the community, but the same person is creating police contracts that really harm members of the community who are really willing to be in the pocket of corporate interests and to expedite gentrification at the risk of the very communities that they look like and come from. So we can't just give people a carte blanche, which is funny because it means white cart, you know, (laughs) empty cart. We can't just give people a carte blanche based on their identity groups unless they're willing to do the work. So I want to ask you if before we wrap up, you can give kind of the two minute pitch that you give to some of your friends who are progressives who might have previously supported Warren or some of these other candidates about why now that we're down to the wire with two candidates remaining, they should vote for Bernie Sanders over Joe Biden. No pressure. Okay. Um, (laughs) The good thing is now the elevator pitches have gotten a lot longer because people are indoors and they're not running around. (laughs) But essentially, you know, and it was my friend who was a flight attendant 
Kayla, who called me and told me why Bernie Sanders is the ultimate choice, because he has a track record of doing the right thing for not just poor people and working class people, but also for different demographics, including black people, Latinos, immigrants, people who are refugees. You can't have a candidate that cares more about refugees than an anti-war candidate because that anti-war candidate doesn't want to create more refugees. And so it's just a holistic view of what America needs next. And it's not more of the same. A lot of us were, you know, full adults when the financial collapse happened. Capitalism hasn't worked in the United States in a long time. Some of the best programs that have been created for the United States and for the betterment of the United States have been socialist programs. We can look at the New Deal. We can look at the Civilian Conservation Corps. We can look at the GI Bill. Now we need a race analysis to that. And that's why Bernie Sanders, I think, is a perfect candidate because he's somebody who understands and acknowledges that He's also lived through so many of the things that have gone awry and has been on the right side of saying, this is going to go to shit. Pay attention. And the last thing is I see so many folks who are uncomfortable with like his speech pattern, but most of us didn't grow up in waspy households where we have to Mm -hmm. whisper constantly. So get excited about a candidate that is not just apathetic and trying to be genteel about politics, but is really bringing the fire and bringing the energy when it comes to talking about life and death circumstances. And I think Rita agrees. (laughs) Rita, um, Blair's dog, who's super adorable for those of you who are listening and not watching, is coming into the frame and sparking joy all over the place. Thank you so much for that, Blair. Is there, can you tell listeners and watchers where they can find you and what publications you have out or forthcoming or any upcoming virtual speaking events that they should be attended to? Definitely. So I'm going to be doing a lot of book talks coming up soon. Books being Making Our Way Home, The Great Migration and the Black American Dream, which Rita loves. She's petting the book right now. And yeah, you can find me at Blair Imani. That's B-L-A-I-R-I-M-A-N-I. I think I spelled that right. Yeah. Sorry. The, you know, cabin fever is really going to shit. But um, you can find more about me at BlairImani.com and then my virtual events at BlairImani.com forward slash events. But you can always hit me up in the DMs if you liked what I had to say. If you didn't, you can go to my mailing and you can send me a complaint. That's blairmoney.com forward slash contact. You can even select hate mail (laughs) if you really want to send me some nasty stuff. That way it's organized. (laughs) I'm sure none of these Bernie siblings are going to do any of that. I know, I know. The Sanders siblings are some classy dames. Well, thank you so much. And I hope that you and Rita stay safe. Thank you. Say bye. That's it for this week. Hear the Burn is produced by Ben Dalton and Christopher Moore. Let us know what you think at heartheburn at berniesanders.com or else take to Twitter with the hashtag heartheburn. I love to read your feedback on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or wherever you get these episodes. So be sure to rate, review, or like us whenever you get a chance. Please, please, please be safe. And I'll be back next week. Bye.